Well, good morning. Welcome to Epic. My name is Tim Jones. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and we are so glad that you're here with us today. Today, we are continuing on in our series called Stand in the Gap. And during this series, we've been exploring what it means for someone to stand in the gap of someone else on the behalf of other people. And so we've been asking questions of what does it take to be a gap filler? Or, uh, you know, why should we as people be characterized as gap fillers? Now, this concept comes from us uh, from a time, a period of history of 590 BC, uh, when the people of God had turned away from God himself. And uh, at that point, the nation of Israel had been dismantled and they were dispersed and the capital city was in ruins and the walls were destroyed. And God said this, he said in this passage, I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land, but I found no one. So eventually, God did raise up some gap fillers. As we've been in this series, uh, we started out with Ezekiel, and Ezekiel called or pointed the people back to God because prior to that, uh, no one was standing in the gap. And so he had dispersed them amongst the empire of Babylon. And then uh, there's Esther, who's going to focus on today. And then last week, we focused on Nehemiah, who stood in the gap to bring the people back together to physically rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, but also to unite the people with God himself. And today, God is still looking for those who would stand in the gap on the behalf of others. There's someone that needs you and I to stand in the gap. There is a community that needs us to stand in the gap in, on behalf of them. Now, when we talk about becoming a gap filler, uh, I think we all like the idea of standing in the gap for someone. Uh, but then there's some things that kind of hold us back that are within us uh, from actually doing it. And so I need a little audience participation. Uh, I just need one or two word answers out loud to this question. The question is, what are some of the things within us that hold us back from standing in the gap for others? Fear. What else? Pride. Pride. Yeah. What else? Resources. Resources and something else. Time. Yeah, those are all great answers. Yeah. You know, I think some of the things that hold us back are our past experiences, whether that's guilt, whether that's, you know, uh, not having the time, the resources, feeling guilty about something. And so... <clears throat> We all have something that we've done in the past that we're not too proud of. You know, maybe we thought it was going to be funny at the time. Maybe we thought nobody would remember it or anything. But then with social media, oh, it follows us, doesn't it, right? You know, and uh, people continue to repost it. There's something that continues to follow me and uh, that I just can't seem to shake. Yeah. Hey, after 1.5 million views... It has been touched. No, just kidding. Only 500 views. But, uh, but seriously, isn't it crazy how much our past can hold us back? You know, when I was growing up as a kid and for most of my life, um, I was the type of person who just kept track of my mistakes. Uh, for some reason, I just did that. You know, whenever I did something wrong, I just knew I did it wrong. And there was a weight of guilt on my shoulders. And I just felt like I failed myself. I felt like I failed other people. I felt like I let God down. And so whenever God would come to me and say, I want you to do something, my response back to him was like, God, you've got the wrong person, you know? Uh, you can't use me. I've made too many mistakes, 
You know, I'm not good enough. There's no way that you can use me. And so I'm curious, uh, by a raise of hands, how many have ever felt like that? Yeah, a lot of us, a lot of us. And so when I got into those moments of self-doubt, um, you know, I would start to actually get defensive with God. And I would start to ask him questions of like, God, why does it seem like I fail all the time? God, why won't you help me? And sometimes when I got in a really bad spot, I would say, God, do you even hear me? Are you even there? Aren't those the types of questions that we ask, you know, as we look and as we wonder where God is, you know, especially when he wants to use us, uh, don't we start to think, well, God, where are you? Are you really around at all? Now, it's interesting because during the series, uh, the people of Israel were asking some of the same questions that we are asking today. You know, God, are you really working in us and around us? God, are you really there for us? And so today we're going to look at a person who uh, messed up a whole bunch, and she thought that she could not be used by God. And she thought, God, are you even around? Now, some of you might be very familiar with this story, but today you're going to see it in a different lens. You're going to see that she made a lot of mistakes. And so we're going to turn to the ancient written account of Esther. So if you would, turn to Esther 1.1 in your Bibles or your smartphone devices. Uh, as you turn there, we are going to put it up on the screens because we're going to be jumping around, but it's always good to try to find it and keep up, all right? Um, and then... Uh, just to let you know, we're not going to finish the account today because it's such a long written account, uh, but I want to highly encourage you to check it out and see how it unfolds uh, to the point that we get and see the ending for yourself because it will highly encourage you. So go ahead and turn to Esther 1.1. Now, before we begin, let me share with you what the great Greek historian Herodotus wrote about this time period, as I'm a bit of a history geek, okay? And so in his world-famous collection, The Histories of Herodotus, he recorded the ancient traditions, uh, the politics, the geography, uh, the clashes of the various cultures amongst the Greeks, uh, Middle East, and parts of Asia. And uh, his writings support the following events of Esther as being historically accurate. So there's about six of them. Listen to this. Xerxes became king of Persia in 486 BC. And then Xerxes uh, brought together the entire Persian empire uh, and united them to plan this campaign against the Greeks because his father had lost uh, just previously to him. And then Xerxes threw a huge banquet for 180 days to plan this campaign. And then the Jews, he noted, were dispersed throughout Persia. Uh, prior to that, they were under the control of the Babylonians, and now we're in with the Persians. And they were living throughout the entire empire and in the capital of Susa, which is important. And then the description of Xerxes' palace, uh, when you read it in Esther, uh, it's been confirmed by archaeology discoveries. They match. And then finally, in Herodotus' account, it records that King Xerxes, after his disastrous Greek campaign, uh, took a great interest in his harem. And so the account of Esther is corroborated by another account of history. Now, 
We don't know who wrote Esther. Many people thought it was Mordecai, her cousin. We'll learn more about Mordecai uh, because he was working in the government. And we do know this. Um, Whoever wrote this, he or she must have been alive at the time because there's so much amazing amount of details that are historically accurate. But one of the most interesting aspects of this account is that there is no mention of God. His name appears nowhere in this written account. Uh, There is no miracles. There is no vision or dream of God. There's nothing. Now, why is this? Now, I think the writer writes about this because he's wrestling and he knows that we all wrestle with this one thing. And here's what we wrestle with. We struggle because often we think that God is not working because nothing extraordinary is happening in our lives. And so we're not alone. They were wrestling with that at the same time. And if you think that God is absent or doesn't exist, that's exactly what the Jews were wrestling with at the time as well. So let's begin and see what unfolds with Esther and her her people, starting in Esther 1.1. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire and his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days, a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. So here's what's going on. How do you get an entire nation to follow you to war? You get them drunk, okay? Yeah. So for 180 days, he takes all these major officials from all 127 provinces and he gets them drunk. I mean, if my mama was there, she doesn't drink, she would have gotten drunk, okay? All right? Seriously, that's what happened, you know? Not that my mom got drunk, but that they got drunk, okay? And some of you thought the Bible was boring, okay? I'm just saying, all right? So here's what's happening. King Xerxes, it was normal for Persian kings to show off their major power. Uh, They rolled in their army, the horses, the weapons, servants, and the great wealth, pretty much to show them, hey, we can do this. You know, we can go to war. And then at the end, he tells everybody we're going to do this one last banquet, all right? And then we're going to have a little beauty pageant. So at this point, we've been introduced to Xerxes, and now we're about to be introduced to his queen, Vashti. So let me summarize what happens next. The king has this final last banquet for all of his male associates. He gets drunk, and he brags about his queen, okay? And he calls Queen Vashti to come dress beautifully and exhibit herself in front of all these men, Well, she does something mind-blowing. She refuses to come. She says no. She's got a backbone, all right? Now, that doesn't sit well with the king or his advisors. And so they strip her of her crown, and then they banish her. And so then the king goes off to war for almost three years. Now, let's continue in chapter 2, verse 1. But after Xerxes' anger had subsided after being defeated by the Greeks... 
He began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. Basically, he's having regrets. He's like, man, if I had not gotten drunk, if I had, you know, my queen here, I would have someone. I wouldn't be lonely. You know, there's no one to rule with me. So his personal attendants, his advisors suggested, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Hege, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. So this vice was very appealing to the king, you think, you know? I mean, this is where we get that phrase that describes men. Lady, you know it, men are so... Oh, man, I'm glad it wasn't like bad, okay? So predictable, they're predictable, right? Men are so predictable, or pigs, you know, something. Uh, But anyways, I'll say it for you. Uh, Verse eight, as a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Zusa and placed in Hege's care. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai, her cousin, had directed her not to do so. So let me tell you about Mordecai and Esther, all right? So Mordecai is a Jew who's working in the government at the time and raised his much younger cousin because her parents had died. We don't know how young, but very young and for a long time. At this time, some of the Jews are returning back to their homeland because they were allowed to under the Persians and not the Babylonians. And so we don't know why, but Mordecai does not go back. Now, at this point, uh, Esther gets selected into the harem, okay? And for some reason, Mordecai does not put up a fight, okay? Instead, he says to keep her nationality a secret. Now, this is very interesting because here's the part that we like to skip over when we're reading to our children, okay? And they ask the question, like, what's a harem? Um, What I do is I say, that's a great question. Uh, Let's ask Mr. Trent. Um, (laughs) He loves those types of questions. Um, But seriously, you know, when we look at this story, here's Esther who believes in God. And we're like, Esther, what is going on? Why are you not standing up for God? I mean, there's been other people standing up for God that maybe you were aware of, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, those guys just didn't come too long before you, and they did not cave in in their beliefs in God. But Esther does. In fact, she goes in without a fight into the harem. She um, hides her identity. She goes in and she breaks all the dietary laws of the Jewish people and she eats the food that is offered up to idols and offered up to other gods. She sleeps with a man who is not her husband. She marries a man who is a foreigner who does not believe in her God and will continue to sleep with other women. And she does not say anything about it. Instead, she goes along with everything. And so if there's a person who does not feel like they could be used by God because of their mistakes, it's Esther. If there's a person who feels like they are not good enough, it would be Esther. And her people would agree. Her people would say, you know, God only uses perfect people. You know, isn't that what we're faced with? Isn't that what we've been faced with in life? 
You know, it's the question, it's the reason that some of us never went back to church or gave up on God because someone told us that we weren't good enough. Someone told us that we could not be used. And some of you are wrestling right now with feeling like you've made so many mistakes that you cannot be used by God. Now, here's the really cool thing, okay? No matter how much we have messed up, God does not write us out of the script. No matter what we have done, he is not looking for perfection. He takes us imperfect people and can use us in extraordinary ways when we make ourselves available to him. Let's see how that unfolds. So let's fast forward in the story. Esther is selected as queen. Out of all these women, she is selected queen. It could have been potentially a thousand women. And so Mordecai, her cousin, uh, he's going about his government business. And one day he hears this plot to assassinate King Xerxes and he reports it and he gets recognized for it for an instant, but not like fully because that's just like how bad and incompetent King Xerxes is until a later date. And then a man named Haman becomes second in command uh, in the kingdom of Persia. And so let's pick up there. Chapter 3, verse 1. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agiite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. So here's why Mordecai refused to bow down. Haman is an Agiite, and back in history, the Agiites almost tried to take out the Israelites. And so Haman finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, and he is furious. He's not only furious that this guy's not bowing, but he's furious that this is one of his enemies. He's a Jew. And so Haman comes up with this plot not only to kill Mordecai, but also now that he's second in command of the entire Persian empire, it's time to take out the rest of the Jews. And so Haman talks to King Xerxes, and he pretty much promises him $25 million from the spoils of war. And he says, let me do this, and the king signs off on it. Now, here's something really important. They go to select the date, and it's interesting how they selected the date, Haman and his company and his gang. Um, <clears throat> verse 7, so in the month of April, during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence. So kind of like roll the dice, you know, kind of like let's do something to see how they fall. And so the lots were called Purim to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day selected was March 7th, nearly a year later. Now, you know, back in that day, that's how the cultures and religions of the day would cast or, you know, they would cast lots to consult their gods and to make decisions. And it's pretty interesting that this lot fell a year to almost the date. It wasn't like it was next week, okay? It wasn't like, hey, this is going to happen next week. Instead, it fell to a year. Now, Haman and his crew went along with it, but I'm sure that they didn't like that. And it's kind of like us, you know, we don't like to wait either. Um, you know, especially when we feel like we're waiting upon God to either move faster or get things done more quickly, um, 
you know, even this story, as we're starting to read it, it's like, man, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you jumping in there? You know, when we read this account, we wonder, God, when are you going to remove this incompetent king? I mean, this guy is ridiculous. He's listening to all of his advisors, his no good advisors who are leading him astray. After three years of being a king, he removes Vashti, who's like the only one who has a backbone. And I mean, man, she's so strong, she could probably even stand up to God himself, you know? And then he goes off to war. He fails miserably at that. And then to comfort him, you know, hey, let's have this harem and hey, let's select the next king out of this beauty pageant. You know, that's a great idea. And then all of a sudden, you know, out of all the people that get selected, it's Esther. And she's got like no backbone. She can't stand up to anyone. She just continues to do what everyone tells her to do. And then Haman comes to power and he's about to wipe out your people. God, where are you? Why are you so silent? We're uncomfortable with silence. Maybe God is doing something and he's never in a hurry. Maybe we just don't see the pieces that he's moving, the things that he's getting into place. Maybe God works in the ordinary to do something extraordinary. So let's summarize what happens next. So Mordecai and the entire Persian empire, they know what's gonna happen. They know this horrible plan and the annihilation of the Jews. But Esther, she doesn't know the plan. She's up in the palace. We don't know what she's doing, but she is unaware of it. She's enjoying palace life. And so Mordecai sends this message to her to get her, her attention. He says, hey, Esther, let me tell you what Haman has proposed to the king and that your king has signed off on. You know, your people are going to be wiped out. Here's an official edict just to show you that this is about to happen. And Esther, it is time for you to beg for mercy from the king for our people. Now, Esther feels like it's a, she's a little bit clueless. She sends back a message and she says this. Um, again, maybe she had no backbone. And she sends a message back to him saying, you know, that the king and her haven't been together for the last 30 days. She's not sure of her standing with him. Um, you know, let me remind you, uh, Mordecai, you know, if anybody goes in front of the king without being called, it's, it's death. And you remember what happened to the last queen that was so bold and had a backbone? Now, Mordecai gets this message back and he sends one more message to her and he gets a little intense. Listen to what he says. In chapter four, verse 13, he says, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. Ooh. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. There may be other hope, but you and your relatives will die. Now, those are some tough words, but Haman, I mean, Mordecai's a smart guy. He knows that Haman's out for power. There are people who still want Vashti back in power and your identity is going to be sniffed out. I mean, Esther, you're going to get in trouble eventually for being a Jew. And then he ends with these very powerful and thought-provoking words that encourage her. He says, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. Now, when Esther heard those words, 
I think she could no longer deny that God was calling her to action. Here's my gut on this because of what happens next, okay? I think when she heard those words, it caused her to reflect on her life. She couldn't help to see how God had used all these ordinary moments for such an extraordinary moment. I mean, who took her in when her parents died? How is it that Mordecai happens to live in the capital city of Zusa? You know, who allowed this incompetent king to come to power? Who allowed Vashti to be disposed, who probably had the only backbone and probably could stand up against God himself, you know? Who gave her a cousin who could maneuver through the politics of the day? Who gave her her beauty? Why is it that she was the one who was selected? Who knew the king the best after that and how he worked? And who knew Haman and his weakness? And so I think as she saw that every moment in her past, although they looked ordinary, were causing for this one purpose and one cause for her life. Maybe she was made queen for such a time as this. Because God's not looking for perfect people, but available people. Let me say that again. God is not looking for perfect people, but available people. And so God can use all of our mistakes and he can weave them so that something good comes from them. And as she pondered these things, Esther, who had no backbone, became like this brave heart. She became queen. Watch what happens in her message back to Mordecai. Listen to this boldness. She says, go, it's a command, and gather together all the Jews of Zusa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. Man, if that doesn't get your heart pounding, all right? So I don't think anybody saw this coming. I don't think her cousin saw this coming, but God saw this coming. He never gave up on her. His silence was not abandonment. You know, God prepared the place and the opportunity for Esther to respond. And when she looked back, she could not deny all the things that God had done for her. He was there in every moment. She saw it and seized the moment, and she stood in the gap to be used by God to save her people. And as you read the rest of this story, it is amazing what unfolds and how you can see God working behind the scenes. Because when you look back, something extraordinary happens. Now, you know, when I look back upon my past, you know, I can't deny how much God has worked in my life. There was a season in my life that I did regret uh, after going to seminary and before I came on board with Epic. Uh, for five years, I was in the business world. And I kind of felt like God... You, I thought you were leading me into ministry, and then I just kind of felt shelved, you know? I kind of felt like, God, what's going on here, you know? And now when I look back, I can see exactly what he's doing, how he was preparing me, because God is the God of every moment. The good ones, the bad ones, the ones that we get frustrated with, he does not waste any of those moments. He can use any of those wrongs, any of those things. Now, don't answer this out loud, um, 
But the question for all of us, the question that comes to heart at this moment for all of us is, you know, God, um, are we going to make ourselves personally available to you? God, can I just let go of my past and may I make myself available to you? Because there's someone who needs us to stand in the gap for them. Every act of love is courageous. Everything that we do does matter. There's someone who needs us. So how do we begin? That's the question that kind of comes to our hearts. What, how do we get involved? You know, I think a lot of us need to first start with just pondering how much God has been involved in our lives, and especially how did he get us right here? How are you in those seats right now? You know, what did he do? Who guided you to this point in your life to be here right now? If you look back at everything that happened in your life, how did you get to this place right now for such a time as this? And so today, this is what we're going to do. Today, we're going to close in a song of, of, of praise. I'm going to have you guys stand, and I want you to reflect upon your life. And I want you to look back and see how God has moved in your life. If you haven't seen him, just say, God, how have you moved in my life? And as he brings those things to mind, thank him for using the good things, the bad things, our mistakes, and everything in our lives. And then just say, God, I am making myself available to you. I am no longer allowing my past to control me. And today I'm stepping forward to be used by you. Because at the close of the song, we have a real opportunity to get involved today. There is a community that needs us. There are signups in the back today. And so you can show our community that we are for them and that God is not silent. And so the question today is, God, I am making myself available to you. I'm saying yes to you, and I'm saying yes to my community. And so let's go ahead and stand and close in prayer. And if your past has been holding you back, it's time to let it go. And so let's go ahead and bow in prayer. So Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for who you are. God, thank you that you are always working in the silence, that you never abandon us. I know that's a struggle. Man, we wish we could see you every second. But God, you are there. And no matter what we do, we don't have to be perfect. You're looking for us to be available. You have enough love, enough forgiveness. And so, Father, if there's someone right here, I pray that you will just show them how you've worked in their lives. I pray that they will thank you for all those moments, the good things, the bad things, the mistakes, because today you're calling them to be available. And so, Father, we just thank you for being for us and never against us, for never writing us out of the script. We can always count on you. And so as we sing this song, may we say it to you as a thank you. May we sing it loud, and may we show that we belong to you. And so we thank you today, in Jesus' name, amen.